Hey everybody, this is Rafe Telsch. This is episode 36 of Have Not Seen This, a weekly in-depth look at a much-beloved movie selected specifically by our guest that they're a little surprised when they find out people have not seen. As usual, hope everybody's having a good week out there. I'm in a little better spirits than I was last week, although a little sad at the same time. As I'm sure you've seen, we've lost a lot of very talented people this year, uh, not only because of the coronavirus, but just because of other reasons. And one of the recent losses we had was comedian Fred Willard. And Fred Willard has been on my mind a lot lately, in part because of this week's episode, where we look at This Is Spinal Tap, which was one of Fred Willard's early appearances On the big screen, he has a small scene in it, which we do briefly touch upon the fact that he's in it, but because we weren't aware that we were going to lose him, we didn't really focus on that part of the movie. As I also mentioned in the episode, we were supposed to have another Fred Willard role appearing on the podcast that was originally supposed to be an episode with Waiting for Guffman, which is probably one of my favorite Fred Willard movies, but unfortunately that interview fell through and so there's not been an episode on it. But I highly recommend you check out Waiting for Guffman if you haven't seen that one. Um, His Christopher Guest roles have always been fantastic. Most people know him from Best in Show, but I personally prefer Waiting for Guffman. His loss is certainly sad, and he will be missed. He was a brilliant comedian with wonderful comedic timing, and it's very sad that we've lost him. Uh, But we are looking this week at 1984's This Is Spinal Tap. My guest is Mark from the podcast Performance Anxiety, who I, another one of these where I didn't really know Mark. We just met through a podcasting forum uh, when I put out a call looking for some guests. And you'll even hear me get to know a little bit about him over the course of the introduction to the podcast. Um, Mark is a music person, so it seems very appropriate that he picked This Is Spinal Tap, a movie I had not seen until watching it for this podcast podcast. As I explained in the episode, I was familiar with it, but I had never actually sat down and watched it. And watching it was a blast. This was really an enjoyable movie and a fantastic conversation. I should also note that there may be uh, some audio difference between this episode and some previous episodes. Uh, Mark and I had some issues with the regular service that I use for recording these interviews, so we had to resort to using Skype. And Mark is just an absolute consummate professional. He recorded the audio on his side. I recorded the audio on my side. We were all set up so that I would get a high-quality recording. And somewhere between the time that we recorded this and me sitting down to edit it, I lost the audio for my side, so I had this really high-quality audio for Mark's side that I couldn't really edit well with the audio from the Skype call. So the audio you're going to hear is our conversation through Skype, but in this time of coronavirus, I guess it's not that uncommon for some of the podcasts to be putting out a little different quality of audio. So just kind of chalk this up to that. And Mark, I apologize for not having your wonderful tones in here in their full glory. Thank you for your cooperation in trying to make this interview happen. Really had a great time talking about it. And uh, this was a great movie to visit and a great conversation about it. So here we go with 1984's This Is Spinal Tap. How you been, man? Good, good, man. I appreciate you asking me to do this. Oh, my pleasure. I'm glad to have anybody come on the show. <laughs> yeah, I know that feeling, man. I know what that's like. 
so what kind of movies uh, do you prefer? What's what's your uh, go to for entertainment? I tend to like comedy, um, but I also like historical stuff. Like uh, recently, a couple of my favorites. I like 1917. I saw Ford versus Ferrari. Love them both. Uh, but my my go to is usually comedy. Like this is Spinal Tap. Um, guys like Michael McKeon. Christopher Guest, I love those guys. They're just they're hilarious. Yeah, absolutely. I, I it, it'll be interesting talking about this one. Um, originally, I was supposed to have a guest on to do Waiting for Guffman, which was oh. Chris Guest's next mockumentary type film. Yes. And I love, I, I love that movie. I watched it. I got prepped, and then the guest just vanished like no more communication, anything. Ah. So, so we never got to do an episode about that one. But I have kind of this. Christopher Guest mindset. <laughs> <laughs> That's perfect, man. You're in the perfect frame of mind to talk. This is Spinal Tap. Yeah. So Ford versus Ferrari, uh, yes. 1970. Those were both Oscar nominees last year, right? I believe so. Yeah. Yeah. I have not gotten to see either of those. Oh. I just finally caught Parasite last night. I haven't seen that. It's on Hulu right now. Okay. And okay. it's amazing. I got to say, it's quite good. What, what, now what is that one about? I remember hearing about it, but I don't remember the, the premise of the movie. Because the less you know about it going in, the better. <laughs> okay, okay. I, I mean, in all seriousness, <laughs> I knew almost nothing about it going in, and I was really glad about that. So, yeah, it's one of those that the less you know, the more you'll actually enjoy the ride. Okay, cool. <laughs> I, I, I'll take your word for it, man. I will take your word for it. I recommend Ford versus if you're, I mean, I'm a huge car nut, so I, I love muscle cars, hot rods. So Ford versus Ferrari was an amazing movie for me. And, and 1917 was really cool. Um, see, I'm not a car person, but the cast of Ford versus Ferrari is enough to make me want to see it. It's, it's definitely worth it. You might be a car person after you watch it. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So the name of the podcast is have not seen this. Uh, and one of the questions I've started asking guests, is what are your have not seen this movies? What are movies you haven't seen that people give you a hard time over? Uh, well, apparently not Parasite. Um, <laughs> <laughs> man, um, I didn't think about that question. Um, I, a lot of new movies, to be honest with you, um, just because of the fact that I've got three teenagers and um oh god good luck to you <laughs> yeah exactly they're 15 16 and 17 so it's if i take if i go to the movies it's expensive right so i usually end up watching movies after they come out and the big problem for me and my wife is that we'll, we'll, we'll see a movie we'll see a trailer and we're like oh i gotta see that and then by the time it's 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 out available to watch on on the networks or you know through uh, streaming or red, even Redbox. I've forgotten what it was. I don't remember the names. I don't remember who was in it. And I'm like, I know there was a movie I wanted to watch. What the hell yep. was it? Yep. So. I, I have I have one child, and yeah. I run into that exact same problem for that exact same reason. So I can't imagine it triplicated. <laughs> yeah, it's it's crazy. Um, the God, I think honestly, I think some of the classics. I I, I skipped out on on a lot of, of the classics, like, and I'm not big into musical. So everybody likes things like the sound of music. Um, oh, and I haven't seen Schindler's list. I remember Ooh. that was big when I was a yeah. teenager and I had never saw that. So some, some of the really big blockbusters. Schindler's list 
is uh, I consider it to be, you know, one of the all time important movies, like with a capital I. It is it is an important film. And I, I had a unique experience with that one. I, I went and saw it and obviously it moved me. It was, you know, I was in my late teens, maybe early 20s. I can't remember what year it came out, but it was it, it was really powerful. And then I don't remember if it was the same time or if it was re-released to theaters, but I remember my youngest sister studying World War II and she wasn't really getting it. Like she wasn't understanding the horror of yeah. what happened during World War II. And I took her to see that movie in the theater. And like, I remember the car ride home afterwards was just complete and utter silence. Like she didn't say anything about it. And yeah. I discovered later, years later, that it, it really had an effect. Like, I was trying to show her the horrors of World War II, and by God, I succeeded. I just yeah. didn't realize it. Yes. Yeah. And, and World War II fascinates me. It's, it's, a, it's a big – I love that topic. I love studying about it. I love reading about it. And uh, when I was in middle school, uh, seventh or eighth grade, uh, my dad – so this was like mid to late 80s. My dad worked for – a japanese company and they had a bunch of their uh upper management guys living in in uh, the new york new jersey area i was in new jersey at the time and i had this project i had to do on uh on world war ii and my dad said you need to talk to my boss and uh it was, it was a japanese gentleman who fought in world war ii mm -hmm. and he was one of the first he was, he was on one of the first trains to go into hiroshima immediately after the bomb hit oh god and so he started to tell me about what he experienced in during the cleanup, you know, because he, he was one of the first groups to go in after the bomb had gone off to, to clean up the, the absolute destruction. And uh, the, the things he was telling me he saw were just were just chilling. And, you know, he, he would walk down a, what was left of a street and you could see a shadow of where a person had been, but there was nobody there. Uh -huh. Yeah. And it was it was burned into the concrete of a building. And uh, it was just it was just mind blowing. It was really, really it, it was my version of what happened to your sister. It was it really brought home the the, the horror and the atrocities of the war. Yeah. So. Well, let's, so let's transition to happier. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So we're here today not to talk about World War Two or, or Schindler's <laughs> List, although it's a great movie and I do recommend it. All right. I'll um, try to watch it. Uh, we're here to talk about This is Spinal Tap from 1984, directed by Rob Reiner, written by Christopher Guest, Michael McKean, Harry Shearer, and Rob Reiner, and the rest of the cast, because it largely was improvised, starring Rob Reiner, Michael McKean, Christopher Guest, Harry Shearer, Tony Hendra, and June Chadwick. Through two decades, 17 classic albums, countless unforgettable concert triumphs. They changed the face of British rock music forever. And the best part is, they're back. Final tap, get out there, you're on! Now, they're on the verge of the greatest comeback of all time. Rock and roll! This is their moment. Go right straight through this door here, down the hall. Yeah. Turn right. Their time has come. Rock and roll! Any minute now. Any second. Hello, stage. I think we're lost. There's a little jog there. About 30 feet. Jog to the left. Get ready. Get set.
So how do you describe this movie to someone who has not seen it? Especially keeping in mind that some of the references have pervaded our culture to the point that they probably are familiar with some of the jokes without even knowing the movie. Exactly. And that's one of the things I love about this movie. The way I would describe it to somebody is if you've ever seen any mockumentary about any musician, this is the one that started it all. If you want to appreciate um, I'm Still Here by Joaquin Phoenix or CB4, Chris Rock, any of, anything like that, you've got to watch This is Spinal Tap to find out where it started, where they all got their inspiration from. Gotcha. Yeah, I have to admit, you know, I'm I'm totally familiar with the references. Uh, I'd seen Spinal Tap appear, you know, on on talk shows, the Simpsons episode, that kind of stuff. But yeah. I had never sat down and watched this movie. I had seen scenes from it, but I'd never seen the whole thing until sitting down to watch it for this show. Yeah, and there's classic scenes. Like, you know, there's so many quotes and things that happen that, like like you'd mentioned, that are pervasive. In culture now, um, these go to eleven. You know that. Yeah. I mean, that that kind of stuff that that all came from this movie. Yeah. So why, out of all the movies that are out there, why is this your choice to to talk about on the show? It's it's one of the first movies that I remember watching with my dad. Um, oh. My dad is not. He's he's he likes music, but he likes his type of music he's got a, he likes 50s and 60s he likes bluegrass i was big into heavy metal and i would <laughs> say we probably saw this i guess hell i guess everything happened to me in the mid to late 80s so uh probably around 88 89 mm -hmm. something like that and so so at that time i was early teens i was yeah i'm 14 15 years old and you know i'd seen classic yeah i'd seen movies but what the what hit was that I think my dad was trying to get across, hey, what you're listening to is stupid. And <laughs> here's a movie that's going to explain just how stupid this is. And I don't know if he'd ever, if he had seen it. I think he just saw that it was a mock documentary about a really terrible band. And he think he, and I don't, I don't know if that was his in, intent or maybe it was just, hey, this sounds funny. Let's watch it. But we both sat down and we just laughed our rear ends off. I mean, and it's one of the first movies I can remember doing that. My dad, my dad's a really conservative guy and uh, he's, he likes comedy. He likes interesting stuff. He's a car guy too. But a lot of weird movies came through our house. Like <laughs> two, two of the first movies I remember watching are movies I remember watching with him that he rented. And one was This is Spinal Tap. And the other was Blue Velvet and Twin Peaks. Oh, gosh. <laughs> now, my dad hates heavy metal. He does, he, you know, he, the language and stuff. And he's, he's not, but we just sat down and we would watch Blue Velvet together and we both loved it. And he's like, I love this movie. I love him too. Great. Let's watch it again. Okay. Now, so uh, two questions. One, you've said a couple of times that you're a car guy. Are you a music guy? Oh, I'm a huge music guy. My, uh, podcast deals mostly with musicians and i i'm not going to show you because the room behind me is a complete disaster but <laughs> i've got i've got um cases bins for for all my my music collection because i don't have a place to to put it anywhere but i've got a, i'm gonna say 3500 cds oh my god probably yeah probably like i'm not huge on vinyl i'm not a big vinyl 
guy unless it's collectible vinyl. So I've probably only got like a hundred vinyl albums. But um, yeah, I've got a lot, a lot. They're like the big plastic storage bins you get at Walmart. They're all right. Filled, yeah, they're all filled with discs. And um, my podcast deals with the. It's mostly it's creatives because I've had more than just musicians. But I get a lot of musicians on, and we talk about behind the scenes stories what goes on while you're recording and touring and, and how they got to where they are. And so, yeah, you know, music is, is a big part of my life. My kids all are in the uh, high school marching band. They all play gotcha. whatever brass instruments they've got plus guitar and, and a bunch of other stuff. So yeah, music's okay. All right. Uh, and boy, you keep just adding stuff I want to ask about. Uh, <laughs> so when you, when you watch this uh, the first time, especially as a teenager, Mm-hmm. Were you aware that Spinal Tap was a fictitious band? Was your dad aware that this was a fictitious band? Yes. Yeah. Okay. He, he, I think he was. And I, if I remember correctly, he told me that this is a, a movie about a, f- a fake band and it's supposed to be a comedy. And I think that's all he knew about it. So, yeah, I'm pretty sure the first time I saw it, I, I knew, but by the end of the first viewing, it, yeah, it, it was pretty obvious. Gotcha. So, talking with creatives for your show, have you encountered stories that rival what's being told in this movie as far as like some of the absurdities and such? Oh, absolutely. Um, gosh, I'm not sure who, uh, which stories I'm allowed to tell that aren't. (laughs) I'll I'll, I'll, I'll tell a couple. So there's a lot. We'll we'll let you promote your podcast at the end and people can come listen (laughs) to it on your show. I'm just curious. Oh yeah. There's, there's, there's stories about weird crap happening in, in the in the studio to get a sound that they're looking for a sound they've got in their head. And they're, you know, people are sticking their head in a piano with a microphone and singing just to get some kind of weird reverb that they want. Um, yeah. There's, there's stories about people ending up in the wrong cities uh, for a tour. <laughs> this um, it's crazy. Yeah. There, there's so much. And that's why I love doing the show because I, I like to hear these kind of stories and they don't get to be told all the time. So I, I, I try to get as many as I can. Well, and that's one of the things that really stood out to me when I was doing research about this movie is how many bands, you know, big, big name bands said they felt like this captured them. I mean, how first of all, when it came out, how many bands felt like it was making fun of them? How many bands felt like it was capturing on on things that, that happened to them? But how many of them now, you know, are forming now and look at this and go, yeah, had that happen? Yeah, I think. There were a lot of bands that actually got mad because, if I remember correctly, that because there, there are certain scenes that are obviously uh, derivative of certain things you've heard happening to bands. Um, I don't know if you want me to go into examples yet. Sure, absolutely. But there's one scene in, in the movie where Nigel Tufnell is playing, uh, Christopher Guest's character, is playing a guitar solo. And he's yes. going crazy. And um, Jimmy Page from Led Zeppelin is... One of the things he would do spe- throughout the Led Zeppelin's entire 10-year run is he would do an extended guitar piece, and he would start playing his guitar with a violin bow. In the sp- scene on, in Spinal Tap, Nigel starts playing his guitar solo and takes the violin and starts playing the guitar with the violin. While he's playing another guitar with his foot. His foot. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and he doesn't like the sound, and so he goes and he starts tuning the violin instead right. of his guitar, <laughs> which I thought was brilliant. But, I mean, that's completely derivative of Jimmy Page and Led Zeppelin. So, yeah, I do. If I remember it, I actually think I I read some interviews way back when where they some of them were kind of ticked off when it came out because they thought they were being made fun of. Yeah. And uh, the number of bands that I heard that admitted to 
you know, and it's played totally for laughs in the movie, but when they're ready for the gig and they're making their way out of the green room and they can't find their way to the damn stage and they get lost, which is a great scene that carries on for like just the right amount of time because it almost feels like it goes too long. And then they circle back to the guy who would gave them directions. And it's like, there's an added punchline. It was like, that scene plays out so well. But there are so many bands who said that they've had that exact experience of getting lost on the way to the stage. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And I've heard that story a lot, too. And it's funny because what kills me is that these guys were so young when they did this, you know, and they weren't musicians. So, you know, they were just starting out in their in their comedic careers. I mean, I think they started filming this in like 80, somewhere around there. Yeah. And and so it was just these guys are in their 20s and their comedic timing is brilliant. You know, like you said, that scene goes just to the edge where you're like, oh, come on. And then it hits one more little joke in there and it's yep. perfect. And then it ends. It was just, oh, God. I think this movie really did form a lot of my taste in comedy. Yeah, well, and it's hard. It would be hard for it not to, given the names <laughs> that are involved. I mean, again, Michael McKean, Christopher Guest, Harry Shearer playing the three lead members of the band. And Michael McKean has been so much on my radar in the last year, year and a half. I mean, he popped up. He was in Better Call Saul as the brother, which was not really a comedic role. I mean, it had comedic elements to it, but it was really a dramatic role. He was in Good Omens. Uh, He he popped up on The Good Place. I mean, and it's like this is a man. This is a comedic legend who's still working. Yeah. And really, at this point, all he has to do is show up, and he's funny. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And you know, I mean, he's he's done some great. I like one of the one of his most underrated movies to me is Clue. I have oh god, I absolutely Clue. love Clue. That is one of my all time favorite comedies. <laughs> and that's got a hell of a cast too. And it so, does. So, and speaking of cast, so Spinal Tap, you know, you mentioned the main characters. There's also uh, Fran Drescher. Yeah. Bobby Fleckman, the hostess with the mostest. Yep. Billy Crystal and Dana Carvey are in the movie as mime waiters. Uh, Fred yes. Willard, Paul Schaefer, Angelica Houston, Bruno Kirby, Howard Hessman. They're all yep. in the movie. Minute parts, but you're instantly recognizable. And, and that's exactly where I was going with that is, you know, you, you have these three major comedy forces in the lead, but you have all these. It really is a you have to pay attention to the whole film now that we're looking back at it to catch all of the people who are in it. Like I, I caught Fran Drescher. You can't miss her. Oh no. Um, Billy Crystal visually isn't identifiable, but uh, which is funny as a mime, he has lines. And when he talks, I wrote down Billy Crystal question mark. No idea that that was Dana Carvey as the other mime. Oh, really? uh, I yeah. didn't catch that, that was Paul Schaefer as the promotional dude. Uh, oh, I, I just was like, uh, I was sitting there going, I know who that is, but I don't know who that is. And I later Are find out it's Paul Schaefer. Yeah. Um, I mean, it's it, it's one of those movies that not only has lasting power because of its content, but is a really nice time capsule into the up and coming comedy scene of the mid 80s. Yeah, I mean, it's it's got you know, Fred Willard was kind of on the rise. Um, you know, I, I love Fred Willard. Well, and then he goes on to become a staple in so many of Christopher yeah. Guest's movies yeah, later Best on. Best in Show. I love Best in Show. Yeah. Bruno Kirby as the limo driver. Yep. I mean, 
that guy was legendary. And Howard Hesman was kind of like right in the midpoint of his career. I mean, WKRP in Cincinnati was huge. Um, and then he would go on to, to do that. Oh, what the hell was Head that? Head of the class. Head of the class. That's right. Yep. So, yeah, I mean, you know, he was right at the, in the right in the, at the like, I don't want to say the, the peak of his career because he had a long career. Yes. But, you know, he's in, he is recognizable even to, to, to people who aren't. Also in clue, we should add in. Yeah, yeah, that's right. That's right. <laughs> so, yeah. So, and, you know, it's just, there's just so many people who got their, who, this is one of their first roles. Like, like we mentioned, Fran Drescher, Billy Crystal. I think this may have actually been Dana Carvey's first role. There's just so many people in there. Now you're looking at it and you're like, wait, oh my, I, I know that guy. I know that, I know that lady. So it's just, it just, it was, it's just a, a launching point for so many people. Yeah. Well, let me bring in some critical views. Uh, the movie sits at 95% yeah. at Rotten Tomatoes at 92% on Metacritic. It's pretty well loved. It didn't mm -hmm. do well when it first came out, but it's built up that audience over time. Uh, and I brought, I, I always try to bring in a positive and a negative review. I usually try to use Roger Ebert just because I'm a huge fan, but honestly, his review of this movie just was kind of dull. It wasn't a great review. Really? So he, he, he liked it, but it just wasn't that fascinating a review. So instead yeah. for the positive, I brought in Richard Corliss from time magazine who writes until now rock mockery on the grand scale pretty much began and ended with the Beatles. A Hard Day's Night was in part a joke documentary, while Help functioned as both parody and prophecy of MTV's slick surrealism. Spinal Tap forfeits the goodwill associated with the Beatles for something more bizarre and desperate. For all its japes and jokes, the movie is really about the exhaustion of the spirit, sitting in a bleak hotel suite at 4 a.m. with the bad taste of last night in the mouth and the feeling that tomorrow will not be a better day. Spinal Tap has as many laughs as any rock burlesque, but underneath that rock, it plays like scenes from a marriage translated from the gibberish interesting and the reason i wanted to bring that review in is because it references the idea of the beatles as the rock mon mockery and I i've just done an episode of this on a hard day's night oh okay so it was really interesting to go from a hard day's <laughs> night to this is spinal tap and i'm yeah. pretty sure i'm going to have those episodes play back to back so <laughs> <laughs> that's awesome that's perfect timing and the thing that that the review leaves out is that Okay, so you know, Hard Day's Night, and, and and it's it may have been, you know, tongue in cheek and, and 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 comedic, but that was the actual band doing it. You know, this is a completely fictional band, and everything about it is completely fictional. Right, and, but you have so many of the same tropes in there. You have you oh, know yeah, the frustration yeah. with the the manager, for instance. Yeah. Um, you know, Hard Day's Night threw in a plot line, threw in a character in order to make sure it had a storyline. So it, you have Paul's grandfather here. You have the character thrown in to make sure that there's some sort of storyline in the form yeah. of Janine, the girlfriend. Yeah. It's, there's there's is a lot of similarities between the two movies. Oh, absolutely. But the thing that I love about Spinal Tap is that they didn't have to care because with the Beatles, they you know they still had an audience they had to sell records for. So you know, right. they, they couldn't take the chances. Like they couldn't run around like like David Saint Hubbins, Nigel Tufnell, and Derek Smalls with herpes on their sores on their mouths. You know <laughs> that, that that wouldn't have played very well to their audience. So yeah, you know, no. Spinal Tap could take those chances and do stuff that was a little more outrageous than the Beatles could. Now, have you heard about the the herpes, the cold sores on their mouths? That that was actually supposed to be a storyline that ended up getting removed. No, I hadn't heard that. Yeah, they were supposed to have an opening act that was an all female band. Okay. And the band members of Spinal Tap end up contracting herpes through them. Oh, that, <laughs> <laughs> you know, I'm not sure which is better, 
to leaving it leave it out and just have unexplained herpes or <laughs> or have the, the, the all female opening band that may have been a little too on the nose to to bring the the, the female band in. so I, I think probably removing that was a good idea because I love comedy that doesn't always make sense so yeah. when you see a joke that just comes in has no place in anything still kind of subtle kind of subtle as herpes can be I guess but unexplained and you're just yeah. like what what is this just a comment on the rock star life or is there something behind you know why do these guys all have and why is it all at the same time why are they, why are they all <laughs> breaking out at the same time so all right, the negative side uh, is from the Chicago Tribune, written by Dave Kerr, who I've used several times before. And he writes, Rob Reiner's 1984 satire on rock documentaries has the deadly verisimilitude of a Harvard Lampoon magazine parody. Every cliche is in place, from the grainy kinescopes of Spinal Tap's mercy beat beginnings to the rambling, vapid, between-tune interviews. The material is consistently clever and funny, although ultimately the attributes are too narrow to nourish a feature-length film. Though Reiner has wisely introduced the elements of a plot towards the end, the breakup of the band as engineered by the lead singer's calculating girlfriend, 82 minutes is still a long haul for a film defined only by derisiveness. Okay. I mean, there's some fair points in that. (laughs) There's definitely some fair points. You know, the plot comes along a little later. But it is, to me, it's, it's a fun movie. It's a documentary. You know, it's a band that's released 15 albums in 17 years. Have gone there's been 37 band members you know <laughs> the plot kind of changes because you you get that that's kind of the early plot is that there's so many band members what's going to happen with this band it's, and then all of a sudden it changes to oh david's girlfriend janine is now coming in and managing the band so you get a weird plot shift in the middle of it but to me it, it it's so much fun to watch it doesn't bother me yeah no i and i i mean i will admit you know first time watching it I did feel like it was dragging in a couple of spots, but partially I think that's because I was so familiar with some of the gags uh, that I was yeah. waiting for those to show up. And so it okay. wasn't instead of instead of following the flow of the movie, I was kind of anticipating, OK, when is this moment going to show up? When is this moment going to show up? That makes sense. You know, I, I hadn't thought about that, maybe because I didn't when when I watched the movie, there was no youtube you know so you couldn't go and see clips and some of the some of the jokes were pretty big even back when i saw it you know these go to 11 and they were pretty pervasive but it wasn't and i guess it's just a a issue with the age of the film it's been around you know what almost 40 years now or something like that i don't my math is terrible i don't i don't do a math podcast so 30 35 yeah Oh, yeah, it was close. All right. So it's, you know, it's been around 35 years, you know, if it's funny and it's, it, it's going to be pervasive, it's, you know, and it's good. The jokes are going to last. The people, people are going to show it to more people. It's it's just going to have a, a very long run and people are just going to, it's going to become part of, of, I don't know, I, I guess part of the, some of it's part of the lexicon now. These go to 11 is the, is the big one. So if you haven't seen it, in 35 years you're going to know some of these jokes because it's now a cult classic movie mm-hmm. you know much like 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 uh, pulp fiction you know a lot of people haven't seen that but they know the lines you know going yeah. go medieval on your ass kind of you know so if you haven't seen that and you start watching you're gonna you're waiting for that line to come up so i i, I totally get your point yeah that's that's a good it's point a very i mean long way of saying that <laughs> it's all good <laughs> 
You are listening to 5.30 on your podcast aisle. Confused yet? Well, my dad, Raymond, or Rockland, is putting out 5 and 30, an interview podcast. Wait, wait, don't leave. It's not going to be one of those boring, hour-long shows, no. He's going to be sitting down with creators, voice actors, and hosts from many different shows that he swears you will have heard of, and asking them five random questions. They could be simple, deep, or just plain silly, and after they answer them, they'll get 30 seconds to plug whatever they want. No matter what, the goal is for you, yes you, to get to know the people behind the shows you listen to even better. And who knows, maybe you'll even find a new show to check out. This will all be coming to you everywhere you already get your podcasts starting the first week of the new year. Check castjunkie.com for more details. (sighs) Okay, Dad, I did the thing. Can I please go now? Five and 30 with Ruck, coming soon. So you keep bringing up the these go to 11, um, mm-hmm. which, of course, is the iconic moment. And to the point that IMDb, the the scale for this specific movie goes to 11 on a, <laughs> on a scale of 1 to 10 for every other movie for this is Final Tap, it goes to 11. <laughs> That's awesome. I didn't realize that. And it, it dawned on me that, especially Nigel, that he has kind of an obsession with size going yeah. on throughout the movie. That, you know, it's his his amps go to 11. The uh, argument or uh, not argument, but the 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 squabble over the size of the bread in the green room early on, that the bread is too small. Uh, Stonehenge size, which was totally his mistake. Yep. What do you think about that as a recurring gag? Because I hadn't as I mean, it's my first time viewing the movie, but it was something I immediately kind of clicked into that, that that was a repeating gag for that specific character. I think it goes back to the, the old trope of musicians and and sex. You know, it's a size thing. It's a, <laughs> you know, it, it's it goes back to the size of genitalia. You know, and and, and sexual conquest. And I think it's it's just kind of mirroring that and and emphasizing that part of the movie where it's you know it's sex, drugs, and rock and roll. And it's just I think it's kind of emphasizing the sex part of that because there's not a ton of overt drug references no there's the not they, they there's, in fact they they really kind of play it clean i mean there's there's definitely sexual references as well but yeah. as far as sex and drugs goes they really play it mostly clean with some innuendo yeah there's one scene where one groupie does a little to the coke and it just kind of passes you by real fast if you're not paying attention don't really notice it there's a little bit more if you watch the bonus scenes on DVD, but even that, it's there's not a whole lot. I think it's the, I, don't, I don't remember all of them, but I remember where they're in a limo and Harry Shearer lights up a joint. But that's about all that I can remember. Those those two scenes in particular, and there's a few scenes where you, you can tell they're supposed they're they they're acting like they are on drugs. And one scene where uh, when the band breaks up, Nigel leaves. And uh, Marty DeBerge, Rob Reiner's character, starts asking uh, David St. Hubbins if he sees the band going on. And he's like, yeah, I don't see uh, a problem with, with going on. You know, I don't see it being any more any worse than losing one of the drummers, you know, one of the 30 drummers. That he had. Right. And he goes, well, are you kidding me? You guys have been together for so long. He's, well, I'm sure if I wasn't so heavily sedated, 
that it yes. would, it would be affecting me more. But <laughs> so you know, it's like you said, subtle things like that. Which I, which I found a really interesting choice because this is the eighties, you know, this is drug humor is, is kind of the go-to thing at this point. And you're doing a, a rock and roll story where drug use among rock bands is really prevalent. And yet they steer away from that area. And I, I, I couldn't find any explanation as to why, but I found it a really interesting choice regardless. I have a theory about it. And I think it was movie ratings were in their early stages and there, there weren't all the different, there wasn't NC-17, there wasn't PG-13, there was pretty much G, PG, R, and X. Right. And I believe what they were, they, their mindset is that a lot of the people who are going to want to see this are in that PG age range. So we need to, we can do certain things to keep it that are funny and risque, like the herpes jokes and and the F-bombs and all that. But the drug use, I think overt drug use is going to inch it closer to that R rating. And so I think we need, if we want the uh, audience that we're, we're targeting to watch this, we got to keep it PG. Gotcha. That's, that's my theory. Yeah, that's an interesting theory. I mean, it does end up getting rated R, but I I, yeah. I can see that mentality. Yeah. I mean, that would make sense. And because, you know, my dad let me watch it. And, and you know, when I was 15 and so, you know, if there was, because it'll give you an explanation on to, as to the reason for the ratings. And if it's like, you know, overt drug use, my dad would be like, no, sorry. But, you know, some sexual references, um, language. I mean, because there's not even nudity in it. Even even that is just, is toned down a lot. There, there's references to sexual innuendo and, and, and what the uh, album cover is supposed to look like. The, the end <laughs> being just black. So I, I think maybe... Maybe it was it was a, an attempt to try to get it accepted by uh, an audience, and you know maybe they ultimately failed and did get that R rating. But parents are a funny thing to play to, yeah. like like my dad. You know, if it, if when I was getting close to the age of where I could actually see an R rated movie on my own, if if he thought it was okay, you know, it doesn't say there's you know explicit sexual content or anything. You know, okay, we you know he's old enough; he can we can watch that. So. Yeah, I, I I experienced that with my own son. I mean, it's like he he's mm. known for a long time PG thirteen movies are off limits, and then suddenly the last couple of Avengers movies were PG thirteen, and I I watched them first with without him to make sure that yeah. they were okay. But once I've watched it, it's like okay, well you know for him this is appropriate. Like he's all yeah. excited this week because he gets to finally watch Guardians of the Galaxy because I felt like the language in that movie was so heavy at the yeah. point that it came out. He was so young. It just it was not going to lead to a good experience on the playground. And I was going to get a phone call. <laughs> I just but now he's older. Now he's older. And I feel like he can handle it. I just had that experience Saturday night. Um, so <laughs> so my, my kids are 15, 16 and 17. So my oldest is, I mean, she can go watch an R movie now on her own. And I'm just like, how the hell did that happen? But, <laughs> so we watched 1917 and I didn't realize how many F-bombs there are in that movie. There are a lot. And I'm sitting there on the couch with my two daughters and my son and F this, you F in this. F. Wow. I'm like, guys, we're going to watch this all the way through, but and they're like, yeah, dad, we know, we know, we know. I'm like, okay, all right. I guess I've, I've done okay parenting because they know what the problem is, even if I'm exposing it to them now. Yeah, there you go. 
Um, so you mentioned the album cover, which kind of ends up another repeating gag yeah. or storyline element, depending on how you want to look at it, that the the original album cover they have uh, in mind, or I, I guess they've already developed it, of this woman down on all fours with a collar and being forced to smell a glove. And you forgot um, that she's oiled up. Right. She's oiled up. Like That's important detail. Can't leave that out. And they don't see why it's sexy. I mean, sexist. Exactly. <laughs> sexy. Um, fa- that is one of my favorite lines in the whole movie. They say it's it's sexist, and Nigel says, "What's wrong with being sexy?" Right. <laughs> <laughs> so that leads to them having this issue with the album cover with the studio, and eventually getting a just pure all black album cover. Yes. So in your conversations with creative types, are album covers actually a fight? Are they something that artists deal with? Or is it just, does the movie make a bigger deal out of it than it actually is? I haven't had a, a, a guest on that has, that has had a big issue with uh, the album covers. Cause I'm, I'm, I'm trying to think of one that would actually be risque, that there would have been an issue. And, and nowadays, there's a lot more leeway with what goes out you know although I, you know I, I guess maybe i take that back because if you look at some of the heavy metal albums of the early to mid 80s some of them were pretty pretty out there but most of them were drawings and not right. actual people like look at the the album cover to the movie heavy metal you know yeah <laughs> half naked lady on it so i haven't had that experience or that conversation with anybody but now that you mentioned it that might be something i i start asking them that's a good question to ask. Well, and I, I love the fact that in reality, you know, 10 years later, or not even 10 years later, Metallica puts out their Black Album, which yep. is essentially that same cover. The only difference is it has their little snake logo, you know, embossed in black on the front of it. But essentially, that's the album that they put out. Yeah, and they call it the Black Album. Yeah. You know, it's it's and that's a reference to, to Spinal I, I believe they actually referenced it in in uh interviews at of the time they they said yeah we love spinal tap we want you know we, we can't do their black album so this we'll is our own <laughs> yeah exactly and then another classic line is when they they get the album because they're, they're at a sound check the albums all show up they unpack them at the uh the concert hall which i thought was kind of weird but at the concert hall they get a box of al- of lps they open it up and Nigel looks at the album and he goes, it's so black. You wonder how much more black could this be? And the answer is none, none more black. <laughs> and and that's, you know, that's my answer to things. A lot of times when my kids are like, well, how much? Not? None, none more black. <laughs> I, use, I use Spinal Tap as a reference to my kids and they haven't seen it yet. So, but What other uh, lines from this are, are quotable in that fashion for you? Oh, uh, let me see. There's uh, a, it's not really a quotable line, but one of my favorite things in the movie is a sight gag, and it's uh, Marty DeBerge's hat. It's supposed to, it's it's a, a takeoff of the USS Coral Sea, but they kind of close the sea, so it says the USS Oral Sea, and that that absolutely kills me. Um, and, and you know that that uh, went on to appear in another Rob Reiner film. I, I yes, I, I don't. It's, I remember that it did, but I don't remember which one it was. It's in the Princess Bride. It's in the grandson's room. Yes. And yes. apparently, apparently, it was it was required to be in the movie when they uh, approached Mark Knopfler about doing the music for the movie, <laughs> which 
to me is one of the best parts of the movie is Mark Knopfler's score. He yes. said he would do it, but he required that that hat be in the movie somewhere. And they had to recreate the hat to get it in the scene. And Knopfler was like, I was only kidding about that. Oh, <laughs> oh man. Oh, that is awesome. So, all right. So another, another one of my favorite lines is when they're, uh, uh, the first time that David St. Hubbins and Nigel Tufton will start arguing about David's girlfriend joining them on tour. Derek Smalls breaks up the argument by saying a bit of your history is playing on the radio. And please excuse my awful British accent. <laughs> and they go to the radio and they're playing the Spinal Taps. Well, the, they were called the Thamesmen for this song. Right. Cups and Cakes. And so they play it and they go, wow, you know, that takes us back. Uh, the, that was from the Thamesmen uh, who changed their name to Spinal Tap, uh, who are now residing in the Where Are They Now bin. Yes. <laughs> and that was the local Milwaukee DJ when they're playing in Milwaukee for a, a show that was going to happen that night. So it that just killed me. And I love that that's Harry Shearer. You know, of course, he's he's uh, uh, small. He's he's the one who brings them in saying a bit of your history is playing on the radio. And then that's him on the radio doing yes. that. Where are they now? Line as well. <laughs> yes. Uh, some of this, you know, some of that stuff is so subtle and it's so I mean, and, you know, I think. You know, things like that are a bit of convenience and budget. But like, okay, well, let's have you do that. But it ends up being a brilliant little comedic move, maybe even maybe by accident. I love hearing that stuff. Yeah. So the girlfriend is kind of the important element as far as any kind of storyline goes, because you 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 literally get about halfway through the movie before she shows up. Yeah. And that's really just establishing the band and who they are, the fact that they've gone through. What we think is only four drummers, but if you do the math, it turns out they've had like 32 different drummers over the course yeah. of their time. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, and then suddenly she shows up very clearly, but without going over the top, kind of the Yoko factor. Absolutely. Absolutely. Because yeah, she's the one that, that drives the wedge between the two band members, between Nigel and David. It, it's obvious when she makes a phone call to tell David St. Hubbins, that she's coming to join him. Nigel immediately goes sour. And so it, you can tell that that's what's going to happen. I mean, it, you know she's going to show up and, and they're going to get forced apart. But it's even though it's predictable, it's still funny to me. It's because, mm -hmm. I don't know, maybe it's just because even with a British accent, British people are funnier when they do anything. <laughs> but, even though none of them are British in the movie. Exactly. I mean, they, none of the actors are British, I guess I should exactly. say. Exactly. And it's you know you can kind of predict where it's going you can predict their tour manager leaves and she takes over and it becomes a huge disaster nigel ends up leaving the band and then they have to they play second billing to a puppet show at an amusement park and they have to do a <laughs> freeform jazz exploration because they can't play any of the songs that nigel wrote or that right. he plays a major part of which is everything right so right yeah i i, I will say nigel leaving I wasn't sure that the movie, and again, you know, I had not seen this before. I wasn't sure the movie was going to go that far with the divide between them. I mean, it's, it, right. as you said, it's very readily apparent as soon as she enters the picture that she is the wedge between uh, David and Nigel. I mean, that's just very clear cut. But yeah. I have to admit, I, I'm feeling a nice little bit of emotion at the end of the movie yep. when Nigel, Nigel shows back up as they're getting ready to take their last performance on this concert tour and he gives them the news that one of their singles is actually trending in japan 
And he ran into their old manager who, you know, has left the band as well. And would they be interested in doing a tour in Japan? And this is after you've had kind of this nice bit where David has come to the realization that this is probably it for the band. Yeah, yeah, exactly. But I loved that they go out to play this last show and Nigel is standing in the wings and David is very stubborn about look at me i'm being awesome look at me having a good time you're sitting there in the wings he's not saying any of this it's just with his face yeah and then he turns and just nods him on stage yep and he comes in and it's a beautiful moment that they're they're back together they're back to being complete on stage where they belong and then they pan over to his girlfriend who is visibly upset yes but it doesn't matter because the no. band is back together. And I love the way that they do that. And again, it's all it's all subtlety. It's all what you have to read into the scene. Yeah. But it just, it, it moved me to a degree to, to, to have that moment. That's awesome. I love hearing that stuff. <laughs> so thank you for introducing me to this movie. Oh, man, it's my pleasure. Um, and and there, there's so many other, God, you know, you could go on and on with, with the sight gags and the little one-line things like... Uh, uh, all right, so these go to 11 scene. Right. Marty DeBerge is interviewing Nigel Tufnell in his room of guitars. There's, there's, <laughs> there's this crazy famous scene where, you know, he, he's talking about his one-off amplifier where he goes, these go to 11. If, if we need that little push over the edge, we just go up one more. He's like, well, why don't you just make 10 louder and have 10 be the, the last number, but just, you know, and just have 10 louder. And he's, but these go to 11. Right. <laughs> okay. So that's the famous scene. But then there's also other little bits in that in, in that yeah. piece where he's talking about this one guitar, and he's like, "I've, I've never played this guitar." And he's like, "Oh, this is like, that's that's a real nice guitar. Don't touch it." Well, I wasn't going to touch it. Don't touch it. I wasn't going to touch it. You know, I just wanted to ask. Don't look at it. Yeah. Don't even look what, at what, it. <laughs> I, I can't. Can I ask you a question? No. Don't even think about it. Okay. We're moving on. <laughs> yes. <laughs> you know? And yeah. And, and that was stuff. part of what I was saying is like, you know, I, I knew that was the scene where it was going to get to the punchline of, you know, these go to 11. But I was laughing at other moments, you know, the other two guitars that he shows off, like yeah. the one about he picks it up and is like, you know, this just resonates forever. Listen. <laughs> and it's like, it's not making any sound because you haven't played it. How are you showing off that it's resonating? <laughs> but, if, but if it was, you would hear it. That, that's the thing. <laughs> he even explains it in that scene. But he's like, but it's not doing anything. But if it was. And then right. there's, at the end of the movie, in that same sequence, that, that, of that, that same filming sequence, they're sitting down and he, and he talks about the skeleton shirt he's wearing, the green skeleton shirt. He goes, this, this is during the end credits. Yeah. He's like, <laughs> this is an exact replica of the, my inside. He's like, but, but it wouldn't. You know, it's, so it's an exact replica of your, of your skeleton. Exact replica. But it's not, it's not green. Oh, but it is. it's just such a stupid line but but he the way he delivers it is just so deadpan like no yeah of course this is yeah well i I feel like harry shearer almost gets the smallest amount to do in this movie yeah Uh, you know thinking back it, it it really is a lot about david and nigel and his harry shearer's character Derek smalls his only real gag is the airport scene which that, was another scene that I did know about before seeing this movie. Typical bassist. Always gets pushed to the back. 
<laughs> there is now there is the scene when they do rock and roll creation and and that's a whole nother thing the, the songs themselves because yeah. all the songs were actually written by christopher guest michael mckeon harry Shearer, and rob reiner so it was um oh my daughter just brought me my glasses thanks kiddo <laughs> 50 minutes later <laughs> i had five minutes left in the podcast but um so they they all wrote these songs and they played them but so there's this one song they do rock and roll creation where they they're on stage and they all come out of these pods oh yeah he does have that bit you're right and and derek smalls gets stuck in the pod and he, everybody comes out and they're singing this song and he's stuck in this pod he can't get out and the roadie comes in and starts banging on it with a hammer that, that gets amplified. You can hear it over the, the, the instruments. And they're, they're still playing along. They're looking over like, what the hell's going on? They, he's, the roadie runs out and gets a blowtorch and tries to get him out with a blowtorch. Finally, the pod opens up just as the other two are going back into their pod and the song ends. So Harry Shearer runs up to the microphone, sees nobody there, runs back, and then gets stuck half in the pod. Right. And then he just throws his hands up like, rock and roll! <laughs> yeah, I, you're right. He has that, that, yeah. But, I mean, comparatively, he has the least. But, boy, he does make a lot of use of his time that he gets. Oh, he does. And he, ex- he explains it perfectly at the end, in the end credits where he says, you know, uh, David, we're lucky to have in this band two visionaries. And they're like fire and ice. And I think my role is like lukewarm water. Lukewarm water, right? And I think I think that's exactly what he is in this movie, and he plays it perfectly. All right. Speaking of end credits, it's time to kind of move into that part of this show. Unless you have anything else you want to highlight about uh, this is Spinal Tap. I think I think we've covered the main points. Check that out the movie and and get the soundtrack because the soundtrack. Oh, yeah. The songs all, really are amazing. They are, and they're full songs. It's not like they wrote a three minute a two minute piece to be played in the movie. They're actually fully formed songs. Well, and that was one of the things that blew my mind uh, is like thinking about other rock movies. Like when, when we did hard days night, we talked about that thing you do, which I absolutely mm-hmm. love. Yeah. But you hear the wonders perform that thing you do over and over and <laughs> over again, which I guess is part of the joke because they're one hit wonders. They have like three other songs they play over the course of the movie. This one, almost every time they're doing a concert, it's a different song. Oh, yeah. And Big big Bottom, Heavy Duty, Hellhole, Sex Farm. I mean, these, right. these, are, these are awesome titles, and they're hilarious songs. And one of the best scenes is when they actually talk about the albums, and they do uh, – Marty DeBerge starts telling them the reviews that each album got. Right. So, <laughs> kind of go back to your review. Yeah. Shark Sandwich. It's just a two-word review. Uh, shit sandwich you can't print that it almost <laughs> sounds like he made that up on the spot and because you can see the guys almost breaking a couple of times during that segment of the movie yes so i All don't right, know if well, that was improvised or not yeah oh well most of the movie was improvised i mean that's that's yeah. that was part of the writing credit <laughs> issue is they wanted to give everybody credit for writing because it really wasn't a script they, they got <laughs> notes that said where the scene began where the scene ended and important things that needed to happen and, and then they improvised so it's, it's, it was a perfect it to me an improvised movie has a 99 percent chance to fail and but this one just nails it yeah all right well let's move into the end credits here first up we've got the algorithm says uh this is a list of movies that various algorithms say you will like because you liked this is spinal tap so this is kind of a lightning round of responses to these movies you like them you don't like them you don't see how the hell they've they're connected you haven't seen <laughs> okay. them you know whatever awesome. all right all right all right I'm ready. 
Waiting for Guffman. Love it. Yeah. As I said, uh, we were supposed to have an episode about it. Didn't get it. That's a shame. Yeah. Uh, a Mighty Wind. That was good. I, I don't like it as much as the others, but I, I did. It was good. Yeah. I, I love the fact that that uh, Shearer and McKean and Guest will open for Spinal Tap using their characters for <laughs> from A Mighty Wind. Yeah. I was expecting it to be uh, more like Spinal Tap than it was. And so maybe maybe I, I had a little skewed expectations because I was hoping it would just be like a folk version of Spinal Tap. But right, all right, Rockstar. I don't think I've seen that one. Is that the one with Mark Wahlberg? Yes. Yeah, I haven't seen that one. Okay, Frank. Frank, I don't know that one. It's um. I don't think. I just went blank on the actor's name. Uh, plays Magneto in the Young X Men, you know, the X Men First Class, uh, and he he he's a musician who wears a big plastic mask. That he doesn't take off. Oh, no, I don't think I've seen that one. Okay. Blazing Saddles. Love it. Love <laughs> All right. Blazing Saddles. Airplane. I like the first one. It has a little too much um, stupid humor in it for me. <laughs> it, I, I can only take so much of that. So. Gotcha. Uh, the Jerk. Love The Jerk. That's That's got the right amount of stupid humor. Yeah, that does. Um, the Blues Brothers. That's good. I, I, I've actually, I've loved it. I, maybe I've just seen it too many times. I just kind of like, now I'm kind of over see, it, I guess. I think I discovered it too late in life because I just don't see the appeal of it. Oh, really? Yeah. Yeah. It, I mean, I, it's, it's good, but. It's a period movie. I mean, it's definitely, it definitely shows its age. Yeah. Uh, all right. Wayne's World. I liked Wayne's World. I remember when it came out. Yeah. I'm guessing just because of the amount of SNL actors who show up in Spinal Tap. Yeah, because and this is my controversial moment on your podcast. I don't like Queen. So hearing Bohemian Rhapsody over and over again, it drives me nuts. <laughs> okay. <laughs> and lastly, Clerks. I like Clerks, but I haven't seen I think I've only seen it once. So mm. and it was uh, it's a lot of it with a lot of people from New Jersey. I was in New Jersey at the time, close by. So maybe that's why I liked it then. <laughs> All right. We always end with a pop quiz, uh, four multiple choice questions based on the movie oh that you picked here. You ready? I think so. We'll say. All right. We'll <laughs> see how well you know this. All right. So Rob Reiner, who di directed and appears as the documentarian, was originally supposed to be one of the band's members. Instead, what changed this? A, he couldn't play an instrument like the other actors. B, the gag about dying drummers made him fear for his life. C, Harry Shearer told him he didn't look good in spandex, or D, McKean's girlfriend pushed him out of the band. <laughs> I'm going to go with Shearer said he didn't look good in spandex. Yep, absolutely. Shearer said he didn't look good in yes. spandex, so he decided to play the documentarian instead. <laughs> Number two, the biggest obstacle the movie faced both when it came out and in the time since is what? A, people not understanding Spinal Tap isn't a real band. B, musicians looking for amplifiers that go past 10. <laughs> C, the musical community taking the movie as a personal offense. Or D, people become amazed that Stonehenge isn't 18 inches high. <laughs> I'm going to go with A. Yep, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Um, apparently, uh, when it was released in Korea, it had screens keep coming up that said, this is not a real band. And home video, uh, when it first came out on home video, had oh. several reminders as well. Oh, my gosh. Number three, the phrase spinal tap has become an insult in the musical community, meaning what? 
A, the band takes themselves too seriously. B, the band has become too pretentious. C, the band has gone through a bunch of drummers. Or D, the band attempts to use Stonehenge in some fashion. <laughs> I'm going to say the drummer issue. No, it's that the band no. takes themselves too seriously and has lost uh, any kind of sense of humor about themselves. <laughs> man, see, I was thinking Pearl Jam is now Spinal Tap. <laughs> uh, All right, last sorry, one. The film's influence goes beyond the rock world. What other influence did the film have? A. Murphy Brown, uh, the TV show, changed secretaries every week like the movie's drummers. B. J.K. Rowling changed defense of the dark arts professors every year in the Harry Potter books like the movie's drummers. C. David Bowie used a foil wrapped cucumber as part of his labyrinth costume. Or D, Eric Idle created his own fictitious band, The Ruddles. I'm going with The Ruddles. No, The Ruddles came out before this one. Damn it. I was afraid of that. J.K. Rowling says she was inspired by Spinal Tap to change the defense of the dark arts teacher every year in Harry Potter. Wow. See, I I have never seen the Harry Potter. I'm not familiar with Harry Potter. Oh, there you go. All right, man. Where can people find you? What do you want to promote? Talk about your show. All right, so my show is called Performance Anxiety. Uh, You can find it on all streaming platforms. Uh, It's based off of Podbean. Uh, Let's see, Twitter and Instagram are both at Performance ANX. It's a show we talk to creative people. Uh, We were talking, it's mostly musicians, but I also have had poets. I've had photographers on. um, Let's see, I just passed uh, episode 104. Oh, congratulations. Thank you. uh, see, I've, I've had some pretty awesome people on. A uh, lady named Scarlett Sabet. She was a poet. She's uh, Jimmy Page's girlfriend. Uh, oh. Mark Lanigan from Screaming Trees, Queens of the Stone Age. Uh, he was my 100th episode. Uh, let's see, Scott Reeder from Bankaius, if, if you guys like stoner metal. You know, I've, I've had some pretty, pretty amazing people. Buzz Osborne from the Melvins, Bruce Pavitt, the founder of Sub Pop Records. So check out this podcast. Um, like I said, any of the streaming platforms, but it's also at performanceanxiety.podbean.com. Scroll down. I'm sure you can find somebody that you recognize and would like to hear more from. Fantastic, man. I will definitely check that out. And thank you so much for talking. This is Final Tap with me. It's been absolutely my pleasure. Man. It has been a blast. Thank you for having me. A final note. After we finished recording, Mark sent me a message that he had kind of had a, a brain fart, if you will. Uh, one of his episodes of Performance Anxiety is with Abby Travis, who, as Mark put it, has played bass with the Bangles, the Go-Go's, Beck, and a lot more. And she actually played live with Spinal Tap. So that is certainly an interesting interview to check out. Again, his podcast is Performance Anxiety, and link is available in the show notes. So that does it for this week, but you can keep the conversation going throughout the week on social media, share your thoughts about Spinal Tap, or maybe tell me a movie you'd like to come on the show and talk about. You can find me at Talon Hess on Twitter, or the show at Have Not Seen This on Twitter, on Facebook where I Have Not Seen This podcast, or email me at HaveNotSeenThis at gmail.com. And of course, don't forget to subscribe to the show so you don't miss any of our upcoming episodes, including next week's episode, which features the ultimate battle between a man and nature. Ah, screw it. We're doing Sharknado, folks. Yeah. So those of you who had uh, Sharknado for June, there you go. This podcast is available through all major podcast sources. Positive ratings and reviews are always welcome, as is just sharing the podcast with a friend and spreading the love. And if you like World of Warcraft or other Blizzard games, be sure to check out my other podcast, Citizens of Azeroth, a World of Warcraft podcast, also available through all major podcast sources. 
Special thanks to Chris Talent for our wonderful theme song, and thanks to Mark for providing this week's conversation. Until next week, I'm Rafe Telsch, and this has been Have Not Seen This. Be kind to each other. <laughs>